Hi, I'm Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we are taking a look at the Doctrine of the Trinity with Dr. Veli Mati Karkanen, Professor of Systematic Theology at Fuller Theological Seminary and the author of The Trinity, Global Perspectives. Dr. Karkanen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Dennis. Uh, it's uh, wonderful and a privilege to be here. All right, so the Trinity, um, a lot of people say that it's not a biblical doctrine, certainly not in the Old Testament, but yet many theologians find many hints for the theology of the Trinity already in the Old Testament. What's your take on that? There are two responses to whether there is um, Trinity in the Old Testament. Um, When you read it uh, through Jewish eyes, uh, like uh, through the eyes of Israel, there are, of course, no indications of the Trinity. But because the Old Testament is part of the Christian canon as well, uh, in hindsight, uh, in light of the coming of Christ, um, we can say that there are intimations or pointers to what became the doctrine of the Trinity, but the doctrine itself can hardly be found there. And what would some of those pointers be? For example, uh, randomly uh, examples, there is the the figure of the angel of the Lord, uh, angel of Yahweh, which appears almost as a semi-personified agent of Yahweh, or even the word of God, Davar Yahweh, uh, seems to uh, do a lot of things. And for example, creation, which of course uh, in the Christian understanding is also attributed to uh, Christ. It's not only the Father who is the creator, it is through the Son. So these are the kinds of things that um, Christian readers uh, in the hindsight discovered in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, we obviously see the, the Holy Spirit, the Father and the Son, all being referred to as God in one way or another. But to to get a doctrine of the Trinity out of that still, where do you go? Yes, um, it is very interesting um, and remarkable that when you move from our Old Testament to the New and begin, for example, with the Gospel of Matthew and uh, all the way to the end, the the Book of Revelation, um, it very freely speaks of the Father, of the Son, of the Spirit, and as you said, as divine and as uh, deities as God, without any explanation. Um, And sometimes uh, it is the Father and the Son, uh, like a binitarian understanding, and uh, and so forth. So they are not systematized. They are not put into a doctrinal formula, but certainly, um, for example, Paul, uh, who wrote many of the first... um, Uh, documents uh, in the New Testament, he seems to be totally um, familiar with and uh, immersed into the idea that, for example, there is the Father who creates in the power uh, uh, through the uh, agency of the Son in the power of the Spirit, or um, like at the first part of the book of uh, the Epistle to Ephesians, uh, what the Father has done for our salvation, uh, what the Son has done, and the seal of the Holy Spirit. So it seems like um, there is a very strong Trinitarian undergirding and uh, kind of um, subplot, but it took uh, a few centuries for it to be um, crystallized into a more um, defined doctrine. So isn't there a problem, given what you refer to, the, the binitarian um, outlook? For instance, a lot of the greetings in the epistles, it's starting with God and Jesus, God the Father and Jesus. And there's, there's so many of those um, that it would make you think that, doesn't, is there anything about that that's problematic? Yeah, I wouldn't uh, call it problematic because we have enough passages in which there is uh, also the presence um, of the spirit. Rather, the presence of Pinitarian passages tells us that it took some time even for the early church 
let alone the patristic uh, uh, church, to come up with a more systematized uh, understanding. We can also say in the hindsight that the Pinitarian passages, father and son, they presuppose the spirit, but the spirit is not always mentioned. Okay. And so then we have the uh, early fathers and the councils. Um, So they were, on the one hand, they wanted to guard against uh, modalism and subordinationism, but also tritheism. So what in their thoughts and the the councils, the declarations of the councils, is significant? First of all, it is significant that uh, the, the doctrine of the Trinity, as we now have it, was not hammered out in the academic uh, ivory tower. The, the people uh, who uh, developed and uh, finally decided on the form of Christian Trinitarian doctrine, they were bishops, pastors, evangelists. Uh, they were people who were all the time doing the grassroots uh, pastoral work And therefore, in their understanding, Trinity was not an abstract speculation into some kind of mysterious inner life of God, even though God is a mystery. It was rather a way to talk about salvation, to talk about uh, worship and uh, liturgy, to talk about what God has done as the creator, what God is doing as the redeemer, and how the same God is also bringing out uh, the fulfillment of uh, the salvific work. At the same time, there was a lot of debate and, uh, and uh, we would say almost fighting. If you look at the, like the rubber synod, uh, they were literally uh, behaving not so politely. But the positive side is that for them, the early fathers, and also later, the questions of the Trinity have had to do with the whole center of their faith. They wouldn't be fighting if this were an abstract theoretical uh, question. And it took a communal discernment. For example, if if you think of um, 381 Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, uh, whose basis is uh, 325 Council of Nicaea, it took also, like, like I said, a lot of heretical views to be combated. And indeed, as we know, and it's, it's a truism, that the creeds, the creedal statements, say less about uh, the exact content of our faith. It says more about what we rule out. So the, the creeds do not mean to say everything, not even most of the thing, for example, of God, because God is also a mystery. But they rule out, for example, modalism, which would mean that the names Father, Son, and Spirit are merely names than modes without any distinction. But on the other hand, they also rule out tritheism. Uh, we are not, uh, we do not believe in three gods. We believe in one God in three persons. And then we move on to uh, the Middle Ages, the scholastics, and the reformers. What in, I mean, you can pick out, highlight um, some particular uh, instances there that would be noteworthy. Yeah. Let's uh, talk about Thomas Aquinas, the angelic doctor, um, perhaps uh, alongside um, St. Augustine, the most um, uh, important uh, theologian, at least uh, in the Christian West. Um, it's interesting, Thomas, who was highly intellectual, highly uh, rational, and very systematic, he begins um, his Summa Theologia with um, the acknowledgement that uh, we can only say so much of God because God is mystery. So he was not... Um, unaware of the fact that even the most systematized, and Summa Theologia is very systematized, but even the most uh, systemic um, discussions of God only can say so much. But then he launches into highly sophisticated clarifications of what Augustine and the creeds had said. 
Uh, there's very little new, new as in new and novel, that uh, Thomas and other medieval giants uh, brought to the discussion. It was more about uh, clarification and um, analysis of what the earlier fathers had said. And then, of course, um, <clears throat> those of you, uh, those of us who know church history know that uh, just uh, before he passed, a um, little bit before that, um, Thomas one day saw the light, kind of mystical experience, right. and he said, uh, all that I have written is of uh, not much value. It was not a rebuttal of what he had done, but he began uh, his um, theological, the, the, the summa by saying, God is mystery, so I can't say everything. Then he said many things, and then at the end he saw the light, and, uh, you know, and, and hopefully... Um, thereafter had a theoretic vision, which he always desired. And it's, it's a good path. Uh, when we come to the doctrine of the Trinity, let us uh, bow our heads and say, finite human mind can only say so much of infinite, mysterious God. But let's try to say the little that we can. And then at the end, hopefully it will lead us into the theoretic vision and we'll see him face to face. All right, so we're going to jump way ahead to the 20th century and Karl Barth. What yes. is significant in his Trinitarian thought? He made uh, many important uh, contributions. For me, perhaps the most important uh, thing about Barth is that if you look at this uh, church dogmatics, the very first uh, sub-volume of his uh, volume one, uh, it puts Trinity into the prolegomena, into the first words. So uh, Barth does not wait until, for example, volume two or whatever, to begin to talk about the Trinity. But even before he sets forth his massive doctrine of revelation and Bible, uh, he wants to frame everything he is saying uh, through the Trinitarian lens, and therefore, of course, uh, his doctrine of revelation, whatever um, challenges there might be uh, in my mind about uh, all the details, it is thoroughly uh, Trinitarian. So is his understanding of the church, even though the church comes towards the end of uh, his four uh, main volume work, and and he is kind of uh, running out of time to be able to fully uh, develop it. But this is the the point that uh, he really made Trinity not only a doctrine to be discussed, but the lens through which we look um, at the Trinity. And if I may jump ahead, the same uh, program was taken up, albeit differently in content, by the late uh, Wolfhard Pannenberg. Um, Pannenberg made a very interesting move uh, he wrote, of course, uh, I mean, among many books, he wrote the three-volume systematic theology. In volume one, <clears throat> he devotes two big chapters on the doctrine of God. And it is interesting, the first of the two uh, doctrine of God chapters is on the Trinity. And then the following one, the later one, is on the unity of God. And so, and that is um, taking uh, part very seriously and even going further. Because uh, if you go back to tradition, I mentioned uh, Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas had a, uh, like I said, a very robust um, discussion of the Trinity. But uh, Aquinas also followed the typical path, which is that you first talk about the unity oneness of God, and it makes sense because that is um, how the Old Testament presents to us, and Old Testament is part of our Bible, and only thereafter you talk about Trinity. He devoted about 50-some um, chapters uh, or books, however, 52 uh, um, chapters, kind of uh, long paragraphs to the doctrine of God, and the first uh, 27 or 28 are on the oneness and then on threeness. And I think both... Um, approaches work, but what Barth did and what Pannenberg did is a healthy reminder to us that Trinity is 
not only a doctrine, it is the lens through which all doctrines be looked at. All right, and how about our other Karl, Karl uh, Rahner, Catholic theologian? Yeah. Rahner's uh, main contribution was the idea that um, economic trinity is the immanent and immanent is the economic. Here the term economic means the economy of salvation. Everything God has done in the world from creation to providence to salvation to sanctification, whereas immanent uh, in that context means um, God's uh, life, God's mysterious life uh, in itself. Rahner was uh, concerned about something that uh, is part of the the, uh, development of Trinitarian history, namely, um, it began, uh, the doctrine of Trinity began to uh, be separated uh, from uh, salvation history, worship, prayer, kind of the, the concrete, uh, tangible Christian life, and became quite uh, abstract, speculative. And in that sense, medieval theology and later after uh, Reformation, the, the so-called um, Reformed and Lutheran Orthodox, Orthodoxy, which were highly speculative or highly technical, they made a contribution uh, to the development um, which um, made the Doctrine of Trinity quite abstract and speculative. And rather said, most Christians uh, um, are uh, Christians, but they have no idea of uh, what Trinity is, and they can't be Christian without knowing much of Trinity. So he wanted to forge, again, to establish or re-establish the link between uh, what God is doing in the world and how God is uh, in uh, God's own life. This means that um, we do not have a direct access to the mysterious infinite uh, life of God. We look around God as creator, provider, the God who loves us, who forgives us, the God who is uh, holy and just on the basis of what God is doing and what we can uh, read uh, from the works of God. That is a guide to how we think of God, not exhaustively. So when you say economic trinity is immanent, immanent is economic, you have to be careful of not to take it overly literally. Mm. We, we can only know so much of God. God corresponds to what can be read from the words of God. But God is mysterious, infinite. God is also much more. But whatever we can say of God on the basis of revelation and the work of God, we can trust God is uh, faithfully corresponding, corresponding to it. And Jürgen Moltmann, he's got a lot to say. Yeah. Uh, Moltmann, um, he's still uh, alive, um, unlike uh, the two Karls and uh, the one Wolfgang. Moltmann is a great theological hero of mine, even though regrettably I also have to um, disagree with many of uh, his uh, proposals. Moltmann's greatest um, contribution in my mind is the linking of the doctrine of the Trinity, not only um, to salvation history at large or to the works of God at large, but uh, to the suffering of God. Moltmann namely makes the move, which is quite um, counterintuitive in some sense. He says the beginning of the doctrine of the Trinity is the cross, mm-hmm. where the father surrenders the son unto death, and that, uh, of course the son um, obediently, um, voluntarily, uh, uh, submits uh, his life um, to uh, for, for the sake of the world, and then um, the Holy Spirit, as the Spirit of Life, um, raises uh, the Son from the dead um, through the uh, uh, like the, the Father raises the Son through the agency of the Spirit, and this is Moltmann's way of saying that um, the doctrine of the Trinity not only speaks. Um, 
of the attributes of God in general sense, but it tells us that at the heart of the Christian understanding of God, on the base of what happened on Kolkata, Calvary, is that God suffers himself. That suffering is not something strange or foreign to almighty, uh, omniscient, um, and uh, omnipresent God, but that I rightly understood um, there is suffering in divine life. And that, of course, uh, speaks of what happened uh, at the cross in, in very, um, also in a very pastoral manner. When I suffer myself or my beloved do suffer, um, God is not only uh, kindly observing like too bad the suffering, but uh, in Christ, um, God has also and is participating in the suffering of the world and uh, embraces it and takes his as his own. So we are uh, surrounded by God's love, not only um, in our happy days, but also in our sad days. And of course, Moltmann has this, uh, he's a very good communicator. One of his um, very um, powerful statements is that the God who is um, able, the God who is not able to suffer is not able to love because mm. love entails suffering. And father to two daughters and, and also a grandfather of three, um, I know a little bit of what is parental love? It's uh, self-sacrificing. My own parents, they're still alive. Uh, they have sacrificed much for me. When they say they love me, it tells me they also share in the suffering and sometimes put their own lives um, you know, on, on behalf of uh, my well-being. All right. And how about Eastern Orthodox theologian John Zizioulos? Yes. How do you say it? Yes, uh, John Zizioulos, the uh, Greek uh, metropolitan. Um, let, let me first go back to, to the earlier times uh, in Eastern uh, Christianity. When we go to patristic uh, times, um, the one of the, alongside uh, Augustine, who lived a little bit later, alongside um, uh, Augustine in the West, the three Cappadocians, uh, two Gregories and then Basil, and then of course um, Saint Athanasius, they were some of the main architects of the doctrine of the uh, Trinity, and their gateway to the doctrine of God began more e- more easily from the threeness, and then worked back to oneness. Whereas in the Christian West, not categorically, but in the Christian West, often the Augustines and Aquinas' approach first established the unity and then uh, worked back to threeness. So they complement each other. And then if you think of a great uh, son of Damascus, the 8th and 9th uh, century, the only systematic theologian in the uh, Eastern Church, um, John um, continued uh, Damascus, he continued this um, um, highlighting the importance of the threeness as the gateway in the Christian doctrine of God. And one way of naming that approach is to talk about communion theology. Because uh, in the New Testament, uh, communion, koinonia in, in Greek, um, is often uh, mentioned in relation to God, of course, also in relation to the communion in the church. What um, John Zizioulas, the contemporary to us, what John, uh, and still alive, as far as I know, what uh, Zizioulas does that is that uh, he makes this communion idea, namely that God, the Christian God, does not first exist as only one undivided, but rather that the first Christian statement about God is Father, Son, and Spirit, i.e. communion. And therefore, a true personhood, both divine and human, 
is such that uh, it has to be communal, relational. He has a wonderful saying, I paraphrase, but the, the idea is very close to him. He's, he says, when we are not yet Christians, we are biological individuals. We have not yet uh, found our, our full personhood. When we um, become Christians and we are uh, uh, being transferred uh, uh, to uh, divine and ecclesial communion, we'll become uh, ecclesial uh, persons. And, and that is a good reminder to us of the danger of much of Western hyper-individualistic culture, where it's uh, me and my Jesus. I don't care about the church. Um, I just uh, go to the um, forest and talk to the trees, and, and my God is there. Of course, God is everywhere. But um, this Eulah says that um, because of this uh, communion um, theology, named that even Christian God, one God exists only as Father, Son, and Spirit, it means that um, to be a true person is to be in relation to others and to God. It's a powerful um, um, reminder also of uh, what the doctrine of the church is all about. The church is not only a nice place to be nourished uh, spiritually or to be sent out to mission. Of course, it is that. Um, the church, ecclesial existence, as uh, we can say it technically, is the main um, uh, form of existence for Christians. We are not only me and Jesus. It's uh, me and Jesus and all other believers. All right. And how about Lutheran theologian Robert Jensen? You write about him in your book. Yeah. Jensen, um, um, he, he was an interesting um, uh, theologian. He had a um, couple of um, very important uh, things to say. Uh, his uh, early book was uh, Chayun Identity, in which uh, he basically... In some sense, he took up some ideas from Rahner, but he also developed his own, which is that um, we know the identity of the triune God only when we observe the the life and dealings of God uh, in the in the in history. But so, in, in one sense. Um, God, uh, who has chosen to create the world, has also tied his own identity um, to the happenings in history, in no way being vulnerable, but are guiding. So that, um, and this is also something similar to Pannebeth, it almost takes us until the end of the world, uh, whatever it is, like the end, um, eschaton, to fully know who and what God is. On the other hand, um, Jensen also said uh, something which can also be misunderstood. He said, um, Father, Son, and Spirit is a proper name for Christian God. Hmm. And therefore, it's not at your, like my, or your disposal to change the names, even for the sake of, say, gender inclusivity. I am not convinced that um, that is the best way to, to put it, but I appreciate his um, his desire to also save Christian God from, for example, those religious pluralists um, to whom the identity of Christian God is uh, too easily sold for the sake of alleged uh, tolerance. Okay, and so your book is titled um, Global Perspectives is part of it. So um, you look at feminist thinkers and people from Latin America, Africa, and Asia. What um, highlights or overarching concepts can you um, bring up? One of my great um, feminist uh, heroes uh, um, is the... Uh, moderate Roman Catholic uh, feminist Elizabeth Johnson. 
her book, um, she has written many books, her main uh, treatise on the Trinity is uh, titled She Who Is. And then it's something about uh, uh, feminist or women's eloquence, which is a play on um, the the idea on Exodus 3.14, where in response to Moses' question, uh, God says, um, I am who I am. Of course, which, uh, of which we get the name Yahweh. Yahweh is a Yahweh. And Elizabeth Johnson is saying that um, while we should and we have to, and it's okay to continue using terms such as the father and son, S-O-N, even though they are masculine, alongside those um, nomenclatures, which often become patriarchal and often categorical in the sense that uh, some people really begin to think that there's something about male gender that is um, either closer to God or like God in in one sense is um, masculine. God is, of course, not because God is uh, beyond um, sexual distinctions. Uh, God is infinite. So Elizabeth Johnson says, Let's uh, dig deeper into the biblical uh, traditions and uh, Christian historical traditions and current um, traditions of our culture and see what, for example, um, maternal, like using the, the, uh, the metaphor of mother or sister, uh, or to talk about the spirit, uh, both as uh, he and she, like the Holy Spirit. What? The, 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 let's look at the ways these balancing, not exclusive, but these balancing metaphors, symbols, and images could uh, make more inclusive our talk about God. Because she often says, after all, all of our designations of God, who is mystery. They only say so much. So there's kind of putting in a perspective the often exclusively um, male um, uh, gender-oriented talk and having uh, the the female side um, balance it. And I find that uh, very constructive because I I don't uh, find very constructive those attempts by some extreme feminists who want to replace an exclusively uh, male designations into exclusively female. Right. There are many uh, problems. One is, uh, as I said, uh, what, uh, as the Johnson says, God is an uh, infinite mystery. To take up another example, totally different. Um, um, I've done quite a lot of bit of reading and study throughout uh, the years uh, in some African um, interpretations of both uh, Christ, Christology, and the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, in many, not all, but in many African contexts, as is also the case uh, with some uh, Asian contexts, um, ancestors play a huge role, not only in the culture, not only in the family or clan, but also in religion. And there are um, African theologians uh, such as uh, the uh, Kenyan Catholic uh, Charles uh, Nuamiri, who has uh, worked out a ancestral understanding of Christology, like uh, Christ as the proto-ancestor, and also um, a Trinitarian doctrine through the lens of um, ancestral uh, terminology. And again, mm. uh, he's a, a very moderate um, Catholic theologian, in no way is he saying, let's uh, jump from our current uh, Trinitarian terminology onto exclusively ancestral. No, but he's saying that um, whereas at the time of um, the when the creeds were put together, there was a lot of borrowing from uh, Greco Roman culture and philosophy, like terms, homoousis, and those kinds of things. So he is saying, no, really, let's do the same now when we happen to be living 
in African cultures, which are ancient when compared to, for example, many Western cultures. So I find those um, attempts to contextualize um, Christian doctrine very useful and um, something which may help, uh, because I'm also an ordained uh, minister, uh, and uh, my ordination is uh, in, the, in the Lutheran uh, tradition, and I'm a practicing um, pastor also. There, there, there are also many uh, pastoral gains. I myself have lived uh, and taught theology many years uh, in Thailand, and at the time I, I was fluent in Thai, so I know something about um, the importance for contextuality. When I was teaching in Thai, students uh, who became pastors and ministers uh, in Thailand, a big country, about 60 million people, predominantly Buddhist and also a large um, uh, Hindu, Sikh and uh, Muslim uh, minority. It takes quite a lot of thinking of how to talk about uh, Trinity. They are not, I mean, kind of Greco-Roman philosophical um, ideas or medieval, I mean, Aristotelian was not medieval, but I mean, Aristotelian, the, the application of Aristotelian logic uh, among the um, Christi- uh, Western medieval theologians. Those are quite remote um, tools to people, for example, uh, in Thailand, an ancient culture with huge cultural reservoir coming from the Buddhist side. So that's why it is uh, important that we also um, engage uh, contextual and global views. And that is, of course, one of the things that we take very, uh, we take very seriously at Fuller Seminary, where at the time of this recording, I've been teaching 21 happy years. All right. All right. And so you also talk about Trinity as theology's structural motif. What do you mean by that? Yes. Um, let me illustrate it uh, from my own writings. Um, my main um, theological work uh, is five volume, A Constructive Christian Theology uh, for the Pluralistic World. It's uh, about almost 3,000 pages long, five volume, uh, fairly massive so work. It took you a few days. <laughs> it, it took a few weeks, indeed. A few weeks, um, okay. And it talks about all uh, major Christian doctrines, albeit not in the a typical order, because my first volume is on Christ and reconciliation. But the point is that um, every doctrine, uh, Christology, uh, reconciliation, atonement, revelation, doctrine of God, creation, I have uh, structured uh, all of those doctrines all the way to eschatology on the fifth volume uh, through Trinitarian lens. For example, the doctrine of revelation I'm not only looking at uh, some abstract speculations about whether the word of uh, whether the scripture or the Bible uh, is uh, in error, or I, I happen to believe that uh, the word that the Bible is author, the highest authority. So it's not about that. But I look at how the Father who loves us is sending uh, His Son to the world to to be the embodiment of the knowledge of God in the power of the Spirit. How So I have a whole chapter on uh, framing the issue of revelation through the Trinitarian lens. When I begin my doctrine of creation, which also engages sciences and other religions, I have a whole chapter where I look at the joint work of uh, the Father, Son, and Spirit in creation, and so forth. So for me, from the very first uh, Christian statement to the very end, um, the the structure and the basic plot is a, a triune, a trinitarian form. And so, how is uh, trinitarian thought central to salvation history and biblical narrative? Yeah, yeah, I would say that. Um, going back to what we were talking about earlier. Um, the Bible in itself uh, does not have a Trinitarian doctrine developed, but particularly the New Testament cannot be read and understood properly without acknowledging 
the deeply and widely uh, Trinitarian um, plot, uh, Trinitarian orientation, uh, because everything that uh, is spoken of, um, and, and even some concrete events, such as the baptism, the, the baptism uh, in Jordan of Jesus, uh, there is the voice of the Father, there is the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, and there's the Son to be baptized. It is a huge Trinitarian statement, and coming from a deeply monotheistic Jewish tradition, it's remarkable how even those kinds of concrete events are shaped um, in a Trinitarian manner. It could be otherwise, and a Jewish reader may wonder, what's going on in here? Father in heaven, obviously, the spirit somewhere uh, in the air, and then the sun, um, you know, uh, in baptized uh, in the waters of Jordan, and yet one God. So it is both a mystery, the Trinity is both a mystery and also a key to reading biblical history. And in the hands of the Christians, also the Old Testament, even though uh, it's good to be careful of not uh, reading too much explicit Trinitarianism into the Old Testament. So we are not um, um, doing what is called uh, technically eisegesis. Exegesis is to, to properly uh, explain the, the biblical text. Eisegesis is to read your own thoughts into the Old Testament. Right. <laughs> or whatever biblical text, New Testament as well. Okay, and as far as models... Um in the West, there's a tendency to emphasize the psychological model focusing on the oneness, and in the East, focusing on the social model to emphasize God's threeness. Uh, how do you see those working together, or do we prefer one over the other? What are your thoughts? Yeah. Thank you for asking. Um, to speak of uh, models, as you said, uh, for example, the, in the Christian West, more uh, beginning from the unity, whereas uh, in the East, more from from the social part, Athenas. Those are helpful uh, pedagogical devices, particularly for the beginning student um, of theology. But um, like any model or metaphor, um, they have to be handled with uh, great care. One reason is that um, the uh, border lines between what we call or what are uh, uh, Western Christians, namely uh, the Christian West, both Catholicism um, and uh, Protestantism, Anglicanism, and then uh, uh, Christian East, the border lines are not very tight. Um, th th there's a lot of uh, interchange and, um, and intercommunion. That's one thing. And the second uh, is that um, as long as you use these models uh, heuristically, they function. But they are more like uh, the, when you think of uh, building a house, you have to build a lot of structures, supporting structures, which will be, at the end, uh, will be torn down in order for the house to stand on its own feet. Um, and in that sense, the models serve as those uh, external structures. My own um, preference is for a more social uh, trinity-oriented approaches, beginning, uh, meaning that um, uh, beginning from the threeness, because that, that is the way the New Testament presents us God. The New Testament does not spend much time, have you noticed, in defending the oneness of God, it takes it for granted. The Old Testament does. And it's interesting, in Old Testament, the defense of the oneness of God was more against other religions, like uh, the worship of Baal or Asherah, uh, other, and then female deities. So the New Testament uh, absolutely presupposes oneness of God. And there are a few passages where it is uh, 
very categorically mentioned. But the New Testament's uh, point of view is that um, this one God, in light of the coming of Jesus, is three. And that is the great news. Um, we are doing the recording um, in the uh, Advent season, um, anticipating um, the birth of uh, Christ uh, uh, in, um, on Christmas Day. Um, that reminds us that um, the, the great surplus, among others, of incarnation is that now we know more about the one God. And therefore, beginning with the threeness, like the Gospel of Matthew, totally, it was written for uh, people uh, coming from a Jewish background, and yet, uh, from the f- uh, first chapter onwards to the end, and certainly the Great uh, Commission, it's Trinitarian. Whether it was a part of original Matthew or not, doesn't matter. The Gospel of Matthew that we now have ends, begins and ends uh, in Trinitarian formulae or Trinitarian uh, intimations. So from my, my experience since the early 1980s, it seems like evangelicals have moved from a more um, psychological model to much more social over the last in the last 20 years. And so much of what I've heard is like, the way you're talking about this is tritheism. You're, <laughs> you're just really taking it too far. Yeah. Where, where are we crossing the line and making this tritheism, even though they'd right. certainly deny they're doing that? It sure sounds like it to me. Right. Um, thank you for, uh, Dennis, uh, a good uh, word of uh, caution. First, uh, a word about uh, psychological um, analysis like what uh, St. Augustine did, those are perfectly okay. I, um, I have no problem with um, psychological analysis as long as they are not unduly uh, separated from the very concrete idea of uh, incarnation as embodiment, uh, the word with us. So, of course, uh, like um, memory and those kinds of things, um, they and mind, um, they, they are one gateway to talking about God, but they may also easily lead into the idea that, uh, okay, so the, the doctrine of Trinity is uh, fairly speculative and up in the air. As long as that danger is um, avoided, Psychological analysis are okay. Of course, uh, the, going back now to social trinity and the danger of uh, uh, tritheism, of course, there is a danger uh, of uh, tritheism when you move um, uh, too much uh, to freeness. But I have to say that um, very few people would say that there is uh, tritheism uh, in the New Testament. And yet, from the very first to the very last page, there is this free talk about Father, Son, and Spirit, Son and Father, sometimes Son and Spirit, even at times Father and Spirit, um, because they took it for granted that our Father of Jesus Christ um, is the, the Yahweh of the Old Testament, and Yahweh is... Um, uh, one God. I think it's more about intention and um, and uh, it's good to also to remind our hearers, our listeners, and our students, our parishioners, that um, with the move towards a social trinity, we are in no way, absolutely in no way, uh, wanting to give the impression that um, the oneness of God is being compromised because, as I said, um, the father of Jesus Christ is the Yahweh uh, of the Old Testament, uh, the God of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All right, so you've already obviously touched on this, but can you say more about um, developing uh, the communion and relationality within the Godhead? Uh, Yes, um, it it seems to me that um, a an understandable and uh, intuitive way uh, for human mind um, and also taking a cue from the idea that uh, God is called Father and that the second person is called Son. 
they all imply to me that a way, understandable, understandable way for us to talk about uh, threeness is to talk about relationality. Because as uh, Saint Athanasius, uh, Athanasius said, and it's a, say, it's a saying that again cannot be taken literally, but as uh, suggested, he said, um, the father cannot be father without the son. It, uh, his point was that um, to, to say father is to say uh, relation to father is only relation. You only have father if you have um, uh, children. We call a male uh, who is not a parent. We don't call father uh, any more than a female. Um, the, we only call mother somebody who has children. So in that sense, uh, that the Bible, uh, to, to less extent in the Old Testament, but frequently in the New Testament, that uh, the main nomenclature for God is father, is a hint to us. Because um, theological language is analogical. There is correspondence, but not exact um, equation between our talk about God and our human realities. When when we say God is father, uh, it means that there's correspondence between how we understand fatherhood here but on the other hand, uh, an analogy also means that uh, God is much more than father, or that there are forms of fatherhood in the world which are not images of God, cruel, abusive, violent father. So, yeah, I, I tend to give uh, long explanations, but the point is that um, turn to communion uh, theology widely understood I think has a strong biblical um, support and um, also helps us and our uh, church members and students to have a better grasp on what threeness might mean. So uh, just to push back against uh, traditional theology, I mean, we talk about three persons and we talk about relationality. If we had father, mother, and son, Okay, that would make sense, but we have spirit, which is a, yeah. a, a less personal name. It's less relational name. Uh, yes. So. Uh, yeah. Dennis, I feared, uh, I'm a tongue-in-cheek, I feared that you would uh, raise up the objection. And it is true. <laughs> Father and son are relational uh, in terms of family. The spirit is not. Uh, I think it's also a reminder to us of the nature of uh analogical language, it stops somewhere. Of course, uh, father, uh, mother, and uh, son, or father, mother, and son, and daughter would be a a perfect match uh, for a communion. On the other hand, um, because we believe uh, in the divine nature of uh, revelation, which comes uh, through Christ and in scripture, we have to work with the materials we have. We have the biblical and therefore the the original and the authoritative way of speaking of Christian God in terms of Father, Son, and Spirit. And therefore, we always have to remind us of the incomplete and um, and less than perfect way of um, addressing God. And like I said, Saint Athanasius, the Father cannot be Father without the Son. It only tells you half truth. What about the spirit? The spirit does not uh, fit into this uh, metaphoric equation. There are other ways for us to, to, to speak of the spirit as the one uh, who is also part of the um, triune God. For example, uh, Pauline's statement um, in the first chapter of uh, Romans, um, is it Romans 1.4 or 1.6? Uh, the idea that um, the father raised the son from the dead through the power of the spirit. Very powerful Trinitarian statement so that the son would be laying um, in the tomb unless the life-giving spirit um, 
in conjunction, in conjunction with the father would not have raised son from the dead. So it's, it's a very powerful Trinitarian statement. Okay, and so you're already hinting at my next question, which is how is Christology, particularly the Incarnation, at the center of Trinitarian theology? Yes, um, uh, I have learned uh, from uh, not only from Moltmann, I already mentioned you that Moltmann takes the cross of Christ as the center or as the launching pad for the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, Pannenberg um, goes into the same direction, but Pannenberg says not only the cross, but the coming of the Son, the second person of the Trinity, which is the major plot of the New Testament, that is the gateway into Christian understanding of God. So that um, this one God, there's a um, self-distinction that the Son self uh, the, the Son distinguishes himself uh, from the Father without separation to the point where the son uh, at the end surrenders his life um, to death. And in, in that sense, um, submits um, all of his life onto the hands of the father. And of course, um, in, in the hindsight, uh, awaiting the life uh, giving um, spirit's work in resurrection. So, and, and here we will go back to Rahner um, and, and even to Park. Uh, Bart uh, had this wonderful, because he was also a preacher, um, somewhere in the church uh, dogmatics, I believe it's uh, in the main volume three, where he compares incarnation um, to the journey of the prodigal son back to the father's house. Mm-hmm. That, because behind is the Bart's idea that um, Jesus, the elected one, was also chosen to bear our guilt. So in one sense, uh, he takes on our behalf the the place of the prodigal son, and uh, he is uh, returning to the father's house, um, having already been judged, and then to be adopted uh, again as the son. So those are concrete um, illustrations of the fact that um, it is truly incarnation, thus Christ, Christology, which has revealed us the threeness. In the Old Testament, as much as we know of God on the Western Old Testament, we do not have the narrative, the plot, the key to talk about uh, the trinity of God or the threeness of God. Okay, and back to... um a historical conflict ongoing between the East and the West. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they think it's very significant. Um, I have feeling that most Protestants think that the filioque mm-hmm. um, controversy is less significant than the East and the West think, Catholics, that is. Um, yeah. What's your take on that, and yeah. could you briefly describe what it is? Yes, uh, yes. Uh, Filioque, of course, is the addition to the creed, uh, which says that the spirit proceeds uh, not only from the father, but also from the son, uh, Filioque, uh, in Latin. I have two comments. One, I hope that um, in the current ecumenical situation, we are able to restore the original form of the Nicene Constantinopolitan uh, creed, which says that the spirit proceeds uh, from the Father, thereby avoiding the idea that the spirit is not only under the Father, but also under the Son. Uh, On the other hand, uh, as much as I love my Eastern Orthodox uh, brothers and sisters and uh, my colleagues, also some of them my teachers, I think they exaggerate and um, make too much noise uh, of the ills and of the problems uh, brought about uh, by the filioque. Uh, and there is, of course, uh, as the Christian East acknowledges, uh, there are some biblical passages, uh, particularly in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 14 and chapter 16, where um, there's no denying the fact that uh, the spirit's uh, derivation 
is attributed either um, via the agency of the father or of the son. And why not? Because the, the, the interrelationality of father, son, and spirit, um, it's uh, interrelational, even though, of course, the father is not derived uh, from the spirit. But the point is that they are interrelated. So I would, I am working um, ecumenically towards um, the restore the restoration of the original uh, creedal statement, but in no way do I consider the addition um, as in any way heretical. The creeds are okay. important, but they are not infallible word of God. To the word of God, we dare not to add anything. But to the creeds, we can, but it had to be done by consensus. So uh, Christian West did wrongly because they uh, unilaterally, without uh, consultation and without approval of the other half of Christian uh, Christianity, added what they added. Right. So there's a theological issue about yeah. the Holy yeah. Spirit, but more fundamentally is how are we going to do church? Are we going to do right. it in relationship? Or? Right. All right, so that brings up my final question. What does all this about the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, the centrality of the Trinity, what does it have to do with the life and the mission of the church today? Yes, um, beginning from the life and mission um, of the church, um, in our contemporary understanding of uh, what the church is, uh, we say that uh, the church not only has a mission, but the church is mission. Why? Because um, what the church is, uh, church has been uh, invited into the divine mission, the, the mission of the triune God uh, for the sake of the salvation of the world. Uh, triune God is able to accomplish um, the divine eternal purposes without the church, but uh, triune God has uh, graciously um, invited the church to be the main agency through which uh, the, the, the salvific work uh, in the world, like the gospel preaching and, and those kinds of things, are uh, administered. So the church in itself uh, is in a continuous uh, Trinitarian movement towards the uh, fulfillment, eschatological consummation of the, uh, of the promises of God. Therefore, our prayer life uh, is a Trinitarian. We often pray to God in the name of Jesus uh, through the power of the Spirit. Sometimes when we are too weak to pray, the Spirit utters words that we don't even understand on our behalf. We may also, uh, even though it's not uh, typical, there's nothing wrong to pray to the Spirit. Um, but most often we pray either to the Son or to the Father and, and so forth. Excuse me. <laughs> so I could go on and on. Um, but one of the exercises that I do with my master's students, and at Fuller we only have master's and doctoral students, once we have finished our um, discussion and reading and, and study of the doctrine of the Trinity, I'll give them um, various kinds of readings which make uh, connections between Trinity and prayer, Trinity and pastoral life, Trinity and worship, uh, Trinity and sacraments, to, to help them dig deeper into the idea that uh, true doctrine also speaks to grassroots um, ministry, and, and, and Trinity does. All right, and do, do you think there's some um, times where people are making too much of the social model of the Trinity in terms of applying it to our social relationships, and we've got to create every social structure as a Trinitarian social structure somehow. Yes, uh, two things. On the one hand, if God is um, communion, and therefore like our understanding of God is uh, social trinity, it has, of course, implications to how we structure the church, our fa how we do family life. That's... Um, one statement. On the other hand, the doctrine of the Trinity is not meant to be a social program. It was never meant to be a, a way to 
organize the church or even organize the mission. It is a humble statement about what and who God is. So if and when we use the social analogy as a way to solve or help alleviate, uh, for example, social problems, let's do it very cautiously and and really remember that uh, the doctrine of God is not meant to be our social recipe. All right. I guess we do the same thing with the word incarnation. We talk about incarnational ministry and and that gets overused and it's like, hold it. Don't forget, that's about Jesus. It's not so much about us, right? Right, right. For example, because I also do missiology, I've heard so much about international uh, mission and I say amen to it, but I also say incarnation is much more about something else than uh, how we do our mission. As important as mission is. So that's a good uh, illustration of the Right. Well, it sounds like you keep coming back to, there's two things that need to be said. If you just say the one, we're going to be in trouble. If you just say the other, we're going to be in trouble. You got to say them both. Yeah. Yeah. I have been teacher and pastor for too long time. Uh, If you only say one thing, uh, you know, next week, you say, oh my goodness, I failed to say that there's also the other one. All right. I often use on the one hand, on the other hand. Right, right, right. Okay, good, good. Well, I'm Dennis Messler, and you've been watching The Charge, and we've been with Dr. Veli Mati Karkanen, and we've been discussing the Trinity. So, Dr. Karkanen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Dennis. What an exciting and uh, wonderful discussion. God bless you. All right.